And I remember I bought a Fantastic Four comic and I went outside and sat there, ate my push-up and saw this giant rock guy running around punching stuff and a dude that could stretch. And I was like, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. Art. So people do this for a job. That's it. I found it. That's what I'm going to do. This is Taking Flight, a show about people redefining disability by challenging the world we live in. I'm Perry LaRock. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about superpowers with Drew Maxwell. From a very young age, Drew's drawing ability exceeded that of the people in his school, including his teachers. For an eager, witty, and talented first grader, his only kryptonite was the evil element of spelling. Not diagnosed with dyslexia until middle school, the public school system provided a daily smackdown of the soul. But Drew swore his revenge on the system that didn't recognize his superpower and battled back by eventually turning down full rides to major art schools, working in Hollywood, creating the largest ever movie production company in Milwaukee, publishing a popular comic book, and finally, through some proverbial poetic justice, becoming a professor and the executive director of the Innovation Center at the Milwaukee Institute for Art and Design. Here's Drew. My first experience that I can remember in school goes back to kindergarten. I remember being super excited and it wasn't bad. You know, a lot of it was like somebody read you a book. You did some triangles into triangle spaces, which seemed really boring. And uh, you got to color and you went home. It was pretty great. I kind of liked school. That lasted until about first grade. (laughs) Oh, wow. That was quick. That was brief. (laughs) That That was pretty quick. Yeah. Why first grade? That's when actual like reading and spelling came into play. For me, it was just like, what is this? Can I go draw dinosaurs and robots, please? It was a lot more like sit still, write the alphabet, read the words correctly. That's not the way my brain works. I guess you could say I have dyslexia, but I don't know actually what that means because no one actually agrees on it. You're probably like going to say, no, we have a pretty clear definition of it. But I've never met two people that have been labeled that that are the same. But it was clear really, really early on that I didn't connect at all with the way things were being taught to me, even in first grade. I really struggled with spelling. I still do. Like I I say all the time, I probably couldn't have a job if there wasn't spell check on a computer. Because I still to this day, like you could say, hey, Drew, uh, write down the word elephant. And I would maybe get it right. Maybe. But I could draw an elephant down to the pores and the little hairs coming off of its ears. And without looking at it, I could hit that. And most people would say, oh, my gosh, that's a really good elephant. My brain doesn't work in spelling. And reading was tough for me at first. I read fine now. But when I was really little, it was very hard for me to go slowly through a line of reading. My eyes would dart to the end of it to see what, what shapes were over there and then dart back to the middle. And then I would get completely like, oh, I can't do it like this. Because like when you draw, you start up here, then you go down here, you work on the foot for a while, then you come back over here and you draw the head and you look at the whole thing and you start on a background and you cut back, you know, to different areas. And reading is not like that. Yes, it's shapes, but it's so sequential. For most of us, we don't remember learning to read in any sort of significant way. It's like we remember the grade we were in where we learned to read and then we just learned to read and then we moved on. Yeah, that wasn't my experience. <laughs> but what is that experience? Yeah, it was a basic, I remember, it, I forget which year, probably first grade, just reading basic four words in a sentence. I would just struggle. I'd be like, it just like 
physically hurt me to sit there and try to like decipher this sentence because it was so boring to me. And I, I found it to be tedious and aggravating because I just struggled with it. And a lot of it is, and I've, I, you know, as I got older, and even then, I, I had this mental problem with the logic of spelling. I still do. The word of, O-F. That's not, that's wrong. It's O-V-E. <laughs> of is O-V-E. Oven. Oven. How, what? It's kind of like later on when I got into math and algebra, and they were like, and then you just add a one. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. We have finite apples. You don't just get a new apple to make your little idea work. That's not how it works. Like that really irritates me. And so, yeah, that that was something I just really, really, really struggled with was like the rules of spelling. How, how much of it was it getting caught up on the actual grammatical, syntactical, and morphemic relationships and memorizing those versus just getting stuck on like this, this just doesn't seem right. Yeah, it was both. When there's logic applied to something, I can like really understand it quickly. I, I think I'm pretty good with logic, but when it's just like a set of rules, because there are, and of course, language evolves over time. That's why the words are like that, because it was like, you know, the Latin root and then this, and then some people in Europe started saying it like that. Now the word changed. Like that's why words are weird and hard to spell. There was, it was just also the act of like staying in a line, reading this letter, then that letter, then that letter, then that. It just felt so slow to me. When did you start drawing? Like, how old were you when you just started to be? The second I could hold a crayon, probably. I don't even remember. So, have you seen any of your past drawings? I mean, as a kid, I mean, do they stand out as like you were the first kid to like start using a body without just like the arms and legs coming out of the head? Or were you starting? Yeah, yeah. No, I was always advanced at art and drawing, like immediately. Like everybody would be like, Drew, what did you draw? You know, kids would come over to my table and be like, draw me a, you know, I don't know, a dinosaur. And they'd be like, what? How did you do that? <laughs> you know, and I was like, why can't you do that? It's so easy. When did you start drawing the contrast between learning how to read and drawing? I mean, you started to draw those distinctions of like, well, drawing is like this, and my brain thinks that way. But writing's like this, and my brain doesn't think that way. I mean, is that, is that something you look back on as who you are now to say, wow, that was really a contrast that I was perceiving? Or was it actually you were a first grader being like, this doesn't act like drawing and it should? I think it was that line of things. My brain was like, I don't like working in a sequential line. I don't like that. I don't want to follow direction one through 10. Even now as an adult, I'm still like, ugh, why are there one through 10 in the directions? I just don't, my brain doesn't function like that. And so I think I realized when I was drawing, I felt free. And everything could just flow, crank it out. And the thing that I can't really get my head around is I have a, so I have a photographic memory. Like it's a picture in my mind. And I know a lot of people have that, so it's nothing special. But with the sequence of letters, it doesn't work for some reason. I mean, I I can picture words now because of my brain, you know, I'm older. But when I was little, I'd be like, O-V-E, right? That's of. There's a correlation between like, well, okay, there's, yeah, the hand comes out like this because it connects to an elbow and that's why you can actually move your arms and then it connects to a shoulder. Like there's a logic of why things go where they do based on like a structure that you see. Right. And in letters, it's just like, well, a K looks like this. <laughs> it's not really, it's like, cause somebody a long time ago decided, eh, that's what a K looks like. 
So I fell out of love with school really, really quickly. First grade, I, I didn't want to go to school anymore. I wanted to stay home and draw. When I was sitting at my desk, I felt like it was slow, boring, and I would just sit there and draw at my desk all day. And I kept getting in trouble for it, which made me resent school even more because it was like, stop, sit there, don't enjoy it at all. And I, I started to really hate school. And then second grade, when it really amped up, I think people could tell that I was having a problem with just, you know, spelling. And I mean, I, I could read, but it, I was slow. I was really slow because I was just like, oh my God, okay, go back and redo it. Okay. No, don't jump ahead. I had to like fight myself to be like, slow down. So the second grade, it became really difficult. I didn't have a great teacher in second grade. And it felt like I was being punished when I couldn't draw, you know, like, no, put your pencil down. You know, well, do you want me to listen? Then I better draw a little bit. You know, there's this term, I'm sure you're aware of it, you know, perseveration, where it's like, for my mind to focus on that thing that's so boring over there, some people need to click a pen or like tap their knee, whatever. For me, if I'm drawing something, I can focus on whatever somebody's telling me. If not, it's still kind of a struggle. It's still just like, oh God, can you talk faster, please? I mean, I know that looking back on it, I mean, like, and clearly you're really smart. Was there a time when you started to question that? It really kind of took me down to a really negative path of just thinking like education, learning, school, or negative, negative factors in my existence. Meanwhile, on the side, I was reading books, mostly picture books, but I was consuming all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I found, I want to say it was first or second grade. I, I, I remember I walked into a corner store in Shorewood. I, was, I went in there, I think, to get like a push-up pop. And I saw this rack of these magazines. And I was like, what are those? And they had drawings on them. And it was Marvel Comics. And my brain was like, what? Wait a minute. It's like a book, but it has pictures in it instead of just a bunch of dumb words. And I remember I bought a Fantastic Four comic and I went outside and sat there, ate my push up and saw this giant rock guy running around punching stuff and a dude that could stretch. And I was like, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. Art. I'm, so people do this for a job. That's it. I found it. That's what I'm going to do. It changed me because it was like the opposite of school. There was so much imagination at play. There was so much like outlandish, bizarre stuff. And I, I remember as a kid being like, somebody drew all that stuff first before they made it and put it in the movie. Like somebody had to sit there and be like, hmm, what does that spaceship look like? What does it do? What are the design factors in it? Where's the engine go? You know, like all of that stuff. And I was like, man, that's a job. I'm going to do that. When did the term dyslexia first come into your repertoire? Yeah, so I was, I think it was middle school. I think I was, it was sixth grade of middle school. I was like really into like science and space and, you know, all of those, you know, I, what, what I found to be really imaginative things. I was like always compelled by like the universe and like all of that stuff and how it all worked and, you know, the idea of humans going past... <laughs> past themselves to explore it. And so I really, part of me was like, I'm going to, no, maybe I'll be an astronaut, which is hilarious because you have to be good at math and spelling to be an astronaut. I went to my science teacher because to go to space camp, your science teacher has to sign off saying, yes, I recommend this child to go to space camp. 
And he like looked at me. He's like, there's no way I'm signing this. And I was like, wait a minute. You're a science teacher. You don't want I, Look, I'm interested in the thing you're all about. You don't want to encourage that? And he was like, not until you get your grades up. And I was like, how are those two things related? It's on my summer break. Why are you such a jerk? And he was like, excuse me? And I was like, ugh. So I was really struggling in middle school. Middle school is awful for everybody, but I was really, really struggling. I was depressed. I was unhappy. And the school psychologist happened to be this amazing man. Meet Lloyd LaRock, the school psychologist that Drew was talking about. Full disclosure, Lloyd is my father. And yes, I would often hear around the dinner table about this one kid who blew the lid off of his IQ skills, almost like hearing a fisherman tell the story of his one big catch. Well, I got a referral on a a boy in middle school, and I knew who he was, and I knew his teacher said he was struggling some. A referral at that time meant it was going to a multidisciplinary team, and that a teacher had made a referral because of significant problems of some sort. A referral meant for me that I would do the psychological testing, and then it would go to a special ed teacher, and then a regular ed teacher, and then whatever. At that time, there was very little response to intervention, so I was thinking at the time, really, this long in school, eighth grade, and I'm getting a referral on a kid that's had supposedly issues? And uh, I think he identified (laughs) that I was struggling (laughs) because I was walking around like a mopey kid, probably. And so he invited me to his office and he's like, hey, you know, talk to me. What are you upset about? Blah, blah, blah. Like really cool. And I was like, oh, I trust this guy. This is cool. This this guy's this guy's pretty cool. He's not like everybody else at the school, <laughs> which was really, really kind of amazing because everybody else in my education that I had met, I had disdain for pretty much. I never had like a mentor teacher. I never had like a good art teacher that was like, hey, let's let's do this. You know, never. Drew came into my office and I thought, diagnosis was he'd had a lot of problems in reading significantly and they were holding him back and he was nervous about it and he was feeling kind of bad about it and he didn't like school too well. I got that data and information and I checked on the reading and see what his reading levels were in school and they were dramatically pretty low. It was obvious he had been having some problems in reading. So I came in my office for the evaluation and I remember that clearly because all kids when they come in for that kind of thing are nervous, period, who wants to be sent to a psychologist in middle school because right away they think they got some sort of wacko problem. So I started the evaluation. The first one that's typically done by psychologists was a intellectual evaluation. The best known one around was the Wetzer Intelligence Scale for Children and it measured basically problem-solving skills and language. It's in two big parts, and there's very questions in language that test language ability, and then in problem solving. So I started with the language part of the test, and it was really clear he had some significant problems. He tested probably in the 20th percentile, which is significantly low. So I thought, well, something's going on here. Maybe I've got a cognitive disability that's been hiding around for a long time. But I had to continue the testing, so as soon as I started the visual motor part, visual perceptual skill part, motor skills part, was an immediate change, not only in his attitude, but the skill level. It was almost amazing. At first, I thought more of the same, but I sat up when he went through the first block design subtest in an amazing short period of time. 
that's a test of um, problem solving visual recognition. He hit the top of the scale there. So I went on with the other tests. And it was the same with all the rest of them. Anything that was related to problem solving, visual motor skills, visual perceptual skills, were just superior. The 99th percentile plus on that particular test. So the difference between his verbal abilities, which were running around the 20th to 30th percentile, and the performance abilities were the 99th percentile, that was pretty clear to us psychologists at the time that something was going on that was significant with the verbal ability. Period. So I looked at it carefully, and he kind of said, how did I do? And I said, Drew, you're one smart kid. And he said, what? I said, Drew, you are one really bright kid. Period. I said, I see you got some problems with reading. And then I know they called you a dyslexic, and you asked me what that meant. And I said, well, it's a silly word. This means no and lets it means read. And I said, you can read. You're just having a lot of problems reading. And I said, we can work on that, you know. But there's nothing wrong with you. You're a really, really bright kid. We just got to keep working on your strengths. But anyway, this, this, this man took me kind of under his wing. And he was like, hey, you know, this isn't, it's not you. You're just in the wrong system. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He said, well, okay, do you think you're smart? And I was like, no, <laughs> clearly. He's like, oh, okay, well, let's just, and of course, it was like a nice chess move. Because he'd be like, well, let's just find out how unsmart you are. And I was like, okay. I'm like, is it going to be a test? He's like, yeah, it's going to be a test. I was like, God, man, I don't want to do it. He's like, well, no, no, no. Then you can just know, like, where you are in, in the wrong of things. And if it's true, then you, you got to come up with a plan to work around it. And if it's not, you got to promise me you'll stop listening to that story. And I was like, okay, I'll do your dumb test. So he gave me an IQ test, which I dreaded and hated every moment of. It was also super easy. <laughs> and his parents came in and we met with them to go over the evaluation. And I explained to them what was going on. And so we went into his office and sat down and he was like, so do you know why Drew struggles at school so much? And he's like, well, one, he's dyslexic, I think. He's like, I don't know if we really know quite what that means, but there's a spectrum here and he falls under dyslexia where like his brain processes differently than others. It's not better or worse or anything like that. I talked to other psychologists about it and they immediately assume that uh, oh, that's a learning disability. And I said, yeah, I don't know you guys on learning disabilities. At that time, schools were getting a lot of money if you could diagnose learning disabilities because they got money from the state and they could hire more special education teachers. So the word was if there was a differential of 50% between verbal abilities and school achievement, between intelligence and school achievement, that you just slam the kid in a learning disabilities class and uh, you told the parents that he was just in there to get fixed and then he would be out shortly, which most psychologists by that time were understanding that was by and large a myth. And they asked if he should be in a special education program at the time. And I said, nah, I don't think that's the route to go. I said, this kid's going to make it. He's going to figure out a way to cope with that reading issue because I'm not sure the reading issue is ever really going to go away. And he'll be able to cope with that. So the last thing we need is to some sort of label on the kid. 
And my parents were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And uh, he's like, also, uh, Drew, I need you to listen. And I need your parents to probably listen more. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you, you're genius level IQ. And I was like, man, you're lying to me. And he like got out the charts and everything. He's like, look, do you know how much work it would be for me to lie to you about this? He's like, if you did, if you weren't that bright, I would just tell you, kid, you're just not that bright and you're going to have to find a way around it. <laughs> and he turned to my parents. He's like, are you guys hearing me? He's really, really, really smart. And he just doesn't work in this system. It's too slow for him. It's too, too linear, I think is one of the words that, that was thrown about. And just, you know, he has a difference that this system doesn't address. The way he learns, the way he processes information, the way he navigates logic is different than most of the people around him. Now you sort of had this evidence, mm -hmm. but you almost had like this jail sentence for another four or five years. Yeah. I mean, that's, what was it? What was the prospect then? I mean, that's... You, you put it exactly right. It was, okay, no, look, you're not dumb. This system doesn't work for you. And I was like, well, what are the other systems out there? And the answer was, there weren't any. There was no online, you know, education then. There was, homeschooling was like something that maybe happened like on a farm, right? It wasn't like an option back then. And there weren't all, you know, maybe there were Montessori schools, but my parents weren't aware of that. And even then, I don't know how that would have worked. Maybe great. Who knows? I have some friends who went to them and they loved it. It was like, yeah, so it's going to suck for you for the next four or five years. It was relieving, but it was, I also felt disdain for the system because I'm like, so you just cater to the lowest common denominator and there's no like, there's no <laughs> program. I mean, I'm not the only person like this. There's, I know tons of people like it. You don't have a system for that, you know? And the answer was, well, you can go to the special ed room when it's spelling and math time. So what did the rest of high school look like then? So then I, I went to high school at a standard high school for my freshman year, a very large high school. Um, and I was completely miserable. I was in like advanced art and everything else. I was getting like D's in, just terrible. In terms of the D's, how much of it was just lack of motivation? And how much of it was you think it was an interference with the actual learning differences you had? I would say at that point, it was probably 70%. I'm done with this and I don't care anymore because it sucks. And then whatever the other person would I say, 70, 30% probably. Dyslexia or whatever you yeah, want to call it. Yeah, just, yeah, where I was just like, I have to write a 12-page paper in a week. There's no way I'm going to do that. I mean, there were, I mean, to write a paper back then, you had to use a typewriter. There wasn't spell check. So every word I would have to get out a dictionary and... First of all, trying to find it in a dictionary when you don't know how it's spelled is really difficult. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was right. no search function. So it was like the most laborious thing that I could ever do. And I knew I was going to get probably a D on it anyway. So like, why try? And I used to try to navigate it by picking like, okay, you've got to do a book report on the novel. So I would, I would say, oh, I'm going to read the book 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I'd watch the movie and I'd write up a report based on that. And I'd be like, yeah, tricked you, tricked you. And it worked. Most of the time it worked. So high school was terrible. And then I was doing so well in art that the teacher was asking me to do all the examples for the things to hang up in 
for each assignment each year. She's like, can you just do all of those? Can that be what we do in art? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I'll keep them and I'll just use those year after year. And I was like, okay, sure. That's great. And I think she mentioned that to the school counselor who was like, what are we going to do about your grades? And I was like, can I quit school? Is that not? And he's like, no, there is this thing called the 220 program where it's an exchange with inner city schools. You bus suburban kids into the inner city and inner city kids out to suburbia. And it's like an exchange. And he's like, so we need to fill that with some people. And there's an art school called High School of the Arts. How does that sound? And I was like, is it not this school? He's like, he's like, yeah. I'm like, done. I'll try it. And I went there. How old were you then? I was, I started my sophomore year of high school. And I went there throughout the rest of high school. And uh, it was okay. It was cool because I was with all of the other art kids. It was like the school of like punk rock art kids and theater, weird theater kids and music kids. On a personal level, do you feel like, you know, bad education? Did you give you more time to actually just focus on what you were interested in? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Also, I got to go out and explore the world and I didn't feel trapped in a building. You know, we were taking road trips to Chicago and like going to the art museum and like just getting involved in the culture of, you know, the art scene, I guess. And that was a thousand times more educational than anything I was getting at school, like a thousand times. Like it didn't compare. I don't regret it at all. So what about college? So then college. So yeah. Okay. So then I put together a portfolio and of, you know, they were like, put it together a portfolio. You want to go to college, right? And I was like, I do not want to go to college. Why would I want any more school? So I went to this portfolio day where you got to show art schools, your portfolio. I got <laughs> full ride scholarships to like four different colleges including where I now work, which is hilarious. Yeah, it was full ride. And then even at the Art Institute of Chicago, they're like, yeah, you can start as a junior. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was a full ride because my portfolio was really good. It was at this time, this is the funny thing. It was at this time where computers were taking off. There was like the Atari, not Atari, oh my gosh, <laughs> Apple. <laughs> I was playing Space Invaders a lot. No, uh, it was the Apple 400 or something. It was like $4,000 computer with like two megs of RAM or something. Yeah. What year was it? I want to say it was 91, 90, 91, somewhere in there. Uh, maybe, maybe 92. Anyway, and they had just created Photoshop recently. And I was doing some research on it because I was like, come on, computers are going to be the way that we do everything. It was so obvious. And so I, I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm going to really dive into digital um, art creation because that's, that's the future. Why would, I, why would I sit there and throw on paper? That's silly. Like, dive in. And so I called all these schools that gave me this, these full-ride scholarships. And I was like, can I talk to whoever teaches digital art? And they were like, what now? <laughs> I was like, like, Photoshop? And they're like, oh, that's not art. That's that. No, that's never going to take off. And I was like, does anybody there see around the corner at all? And they were like, no, nobody here could even teach that. And so I made a decision. I was like, well, I'm not going to college. Why would I do that? I would go into debt for something that I, is going to be obsolete immediately. You know, I'm like in four years, this is how it's going to be done. Everybody's going to be doing this. And so 
I took that money instead and I invested into a like serious digital setup. And a lot of people were like, what are you doing? And I was like, trust me, <laughs> this is the future. And it pans out that I was right. <laughs> um, it, it was one of the best decisions I could have made. I was learning the way I learn. I was diving in and doing things and getting lost and finding my way out of it. And I was pushing like techniques that no one had. I, I'm sure other people are out there doing it. So I'm not like some amazing guy or anything, but I had never known anybody to do it when I was doing it. And I, I fell in, I fell in love again with creating my own education. Like I was like, learning is awesome. I love it. Do I wish that there would have been an opportunity for me to go to a college with the right environment and embracing of what's around the corner? Yeah, I probably would have loved that. But I also think I might have hated it and gone into debt and dropped out. But I don't know because it wasn't an option for me. I really felt, I realized that storytelling plus art, that's the thing. Like, that's all of it. Star Wars, it's the Fantastic Four comic book I read as a kid. I was like, oh, this is awesome. I started developing um, like animation properties, you know, like animated shows. Pitched to like Cartoon Network and Warner Brothers Animation. I was able to get out there and pitch them. And they were like, oh my God, this is great. Because I would go in with the whole show designed, like the characters, what's called show Bible, which is like the rules of the, the project and what the, all the characters look like, what the backgrounds look like, descriptions of the um, each episode's plot. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to over-deliver though. So I designed an entire toy line that went along with what I was pitching. And I was like, I bet most people don't come in with that kind of thing. So I'm going to come in with that. And I like made mock-ups of the toys and how it worked. And like, I made it like a battle system so you can play on the floor. And this is like pretty early on. That stuff's really popular now. And when I was pitching to like Cartoon Network, I was like, okay, so I need you guys to get on the floor with me. And these are guys like big executives in suits. And they're like, what are we doing? And I was like, well, I also brought the toy line. And they were like, what? And I'm like, we're going to play it. And so sure enough, they were, I was like, I'll turn them into 10-year-olds. That's their market. I need, I need them to see what a 10-year-old loves. And so I did that. And they were like, this is the greatest pitch we've ever heard. This is awesome. We're going to do the show. Can you go to our consumer products division tomorrow and pitch the whole toy line real quick? You know, and so like, it just came easy to me to like create that kind of stuff. So that then turned into a bunch of work in, you know, animation. I did the character redesigns of Scooby-Doo when they relaunched it. That was pretty cool. Anyway, that then I really was like, I really love storytelling. And I was like, you know, what the hell? I want to make a feature film. And so. Most people have that thought. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, but you got to write it, don't you? And when I sat down to start writing in screenplay format, it came super easy to me. I could write all day screenplays. Like it was just like, yeah, can I write everything like this? It just totally flows. It's logical. The sequence works. Um, it's character driven. It's, you know, all of those things. And I, I could crank them out in like a month. And so I found, I wrote a script for like a, it was like a sci-fi spy thriller, kind of like Inception, way before Inception, actually, where it's like dream spies and assassins, like all that stuff. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And so I kind of presented it to uh, 
an entertainment attorney here in town, who's now a very prominent um, IP attorney in the Midwest, who had done film work. And he was like, this is good. Let's go get some investors and make this. And so we found um, some investors. We made the feature film. We shot it. It was really cool. It was like so much fun to make this film. What was it called? It was called The Sleeper. Um, you know, like a low budget, some visual effects, which came easy to us. Um, and I clicked really, really well with this partner. His name is Dan. He's an awesome. He's one of my best friends now. And before it was finished, I sent it out to uh, film studios out in LA, distributors. But I sent, I sent a trailer that I spent time making. And I was like, that's how you sell films. They don't, they don't need to see the finished film. I'm just going to send the trailer. And that day I got a call saying, yeah, we want to buy your film. Like, oh, wow. I was like, you don't need to see it? They're like, no. <laughs> I can sell it based on this trailer. Like, that's what we do. And I was like, okay. And then they were like, also, we want to give you a two-picture deal. So we're going to give you the money. You pitch us ideas. You make the films. We sell them. And so that quickly turned into my partner, Dan, and I and my wife. We started um, a film production company here in Milwaukee, which was, you know, there's been a few, but we still were the most successful and largest film production company in the state of Wisconsin's history. And then so that then, you know, turned into I was like, oh, man, you know what? We've been doing this for 20 years. A very large corporation tried to buy our company. You know, like it was like really successful. We had a huge green screen production facility with offices and the whole deal, um, big warehouse. But I kind of like after 23 films, I was like, ah, I'm looking, I want to go back to what I fell in love with. And so I decided to make a comic book, like, you know, which I was like, yeah, that's why I got into this. <laughs> Yeah, so then I got into comics and went back to it. And I was like, I'm going to make a comic for my kids. You know, my kids were young at the time. And I'm like, I'm going to put it, put them in it. And I'm going to draw it and produce it. And I'm going to give it away for free as a web comic. I was having a blast. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's why this is what I should be doing. And the day I, the day I launched the web comic, I got a call from um, an animation studio in LA. And they were like, yeah, we want to do a series based on this. Like the day I launched, I was like, what is going on? Which was pretty cool. And then what happened was I was doing some magazine covers at the time, illustrated magazine covers. And a person at my current um, uh, school that I work at, which is the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, which is a like a top five art college at this point. Um, basically, they called and said, hey, you know, we've seen your work. Have you ever taught? And I had taught. I had taught at University School of Milwaukee. I had taught like art and um, at the high school, yeah, and comic books and stuff briefly for a while. But I enjoyed it. I was like, yeah, I've taught before. And they were like, do you want to come in and meet with us? And I was like, sure, I'll come in and meet with you. And they said, you know, I know you're, you're doing all this other stuff, but we'd love to have you teach. And I was like, okay, I'll make you a deal. Can I teach it how I want, exactly how I want? And they said, yeah, one time. <laughs> and if, if you get good if it goes well then you can do it again and i was like deal deal and i fell in love with it i i kind of came back with a vengeance and i was like okay this is my shot and this sounds full of myself but this is how i this is why i do what i do i was like this is my chance for revenge i'm gonna be the teacher that i needed all those years ago how do you how do you adjust your teaching to fit that style I and mean, what yeah, are the principles sure. i i Every student to me has a different path through whatever course I'm teaching. 
I customize it to their needs. I interview them at the beginning and say, what are your goals for this class? What are you trying to learn? Why did you take this comic book class? You know, oh, okay. So you want to focus on storytelling. All right. You set the goals for the class. I'll, I'll adjust them if I think they're too easy or whatever. And we're, we're going to reassess your goal three times before the end of the semester to make sure that you're going where you need to go. Do you feel like, I mean, do you run into those students that try to use whatever their unique learning characteristics are as an excuse? I mean, do you ever run oh, yeah. into that where they're like, oh, I can't do that because, yes. and then you're like, gotcha. Yes. Yes. What do you do with that? I kind of talk around it. I go, okay, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm dyslexic too. All right. Anyway, what are we going to do? And they go, oh, you are? And I go, yeah. Because <laughs> like so many artists are like a vast majority of, I don't know if vast, but a large majority of artists, visual artists are labeled dyslexic. Do you think there's anything to that? I think there's absolutely something to that. I mean, when I look up my heroes and I read about them, I'm like, oh, also dyslexic. All these amazing artists are also you know, hated school and, you know, they just are visual. Is it a disability then? No. No. What is it? I would say it's a superpower that fits into a bad system. I I really recoil against the word disability. I, I think it's a learning difference. Disability gives you, uh, it might give you context for how you have to navigate and it is not easy. So if that's the what the term disability is, that if that's how you identify it, I don't. I, I see it as a difference. It's frustrating because the system is not set up for me. But so? <laughs> it's not set up for a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, who, 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 it's not perfect for anybody. What would have, what would have made it the difference in first grade? You know, I've thought about this a lot. Well, I think a teacher that said, oh no, cool. Let's, let's, let's do this differently. Let's find a different way to get you to the learning objectives. And, and let's not make you feel like an utter failure because you can't spell the word spaghetti. Right. I mean, it, to me, it's that customization of a an educational experience. Learning is actually like a joy. Yeah. As long as somebody doesn't break your soul of it. And the system, I don't really blame any one person. Like the system was not set up for somebody who engages with things differently and learns differently. Do you think it's gotten better? I think it's gotten way better. Way better. Is it perfect? No. No, it's not. I actually correct colleagues a lot when they're like, okay, I'm going to have my class get up and with the dry erase marker, I'm going to have them write out 10 things that they think about this project and blah, blah, blah in front of the class. And I was like, ooh, I don't know if you want to do that. And they're like, why? I'm like, you assume everybody can spell and they're comfortable getting up and writing out things in front of everybody. I'm like, you should maybe ask them. And they're like, oh, man, come on. And I'm like, you're assuming they're just like you. <laughs> You know, and that might seem like ridiculous, but I'm like, what if you give them the option to text you their thoughts during this class while other people are up there writing? And they're like, why is that important? I'm like, they have spell check on their phone. So they're not going to feel stigmatized by you going, oh my God, how did you, what is this word you tried to spell? And everybody laughing and not hearing their point, not hearing their thoughts behind it because their thoughts are probably brilliant. So now your your current job is the director of innovation at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. Yeah. So this is this is cool, and this is again, I, I'm very proud of this. So I'm going to brag for a minute. I I normally don't, but I'm going to. 
I really think that people that have some kind of, you know, whatever difference of navigating, often they've got to forge their own paths. They've got to make their own opportunities because the system is not set up for it at all. So you will go up against the system and just hit your head constantly and feel like a failure. Well, you can go right around it. They asked me to create a new program at Maya because of all my experience in like filmmaking and animation and all that stuff. So it's a digital media production program, which is short for visual storytelling. You know, any comics, animation, video games, anything like that. They're like, we don't know how to do that. Can you create this program? And in like a month, it became the most popular program in the college. And the vice president said, hey, do you have a minute? You know, I listened to you teach. I think you're the guy. I think you should create this program. And I, and I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Can I do it however I want? <laughs> one time. Yeah, they said, yeah, one time. Don't get it wrong. And cut to three years later, I'm the executive director of the, the name is changing, but right now it's the Myad Innovation Center. It's boomed in two, two and a half years. It's been running, I would say, a more than two thirds of the students interact with the program. And here's why I'm so proud of it. I don't grade. There's no grading. I say, come on in. Anybody can come in at any point with whatever they want to do, some cool stuff, whether it's art related or not. It happens to often be entrepreneurial leaning. You know, I have students come in and say, hey, the three of us want to start a video game company. And I'm like, let's do this. All right. And then my job is to help them upgrade and support them and get them to think about it this way. And, you know, watch out for that iceberg. Okay. I'm going to give you this assignment. And if you don't want to do it, just Tell me no, and we won't do it. You can walk out. And I'm like, I will never grade. Because grading stops, if the word is innovation, it stops innovation. You've got to fail. You've got to fall down and scrape your knee all the time. You know, one of my cheesy things I say to students all the time is, do you know how humans learn? Somebody says when they're little, don't touch the hot stove. Don't touch it. You don't know what that means until you burn your hand and then you never, ever touch that stove again. I'm like, let's go burn our hands a lot so you realize why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but I'm not going to downgrade you when you do. And often they're like, this is a trick. You're tricking me. You know, I'm like, no, you can just walk out if you want. And of course, and then they sit down and stay forever and don't leave. It's really incredible. It's, so it's an innovation program from the standpoint of you can't define what innovation is it's a process that will reveal itself to you through failure and revision. And it's a program where students, like a client will call me and say, hey, we've got a budget. We want to hire students to do this. Well, typically in a college, where does that fit? Um, in a sem- like a se- semester project or something. But it's like, oh, well, we don't really have space for that. Well, now we do because there's an, there's an army of artists that are ready to get paid to do what they came to school for. So I am, we, I have a staff, um, are basically hiring students constantly to work on outside professional paid, I'm going to underline that a bunch of times, paid projects, and they get support in what does that mean? How do you work with a client? Uh, What does it do for you? Uh, How do you deliver to a client? How do you create value in what you're making? And what's great is, you know, I have students that pay to go to my ed through working through my program. So it's like win, 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 win. And the the best thing is uh, they graduate with a list of professional clients. So it's not like someday I hope to do this. It's like, no, I already have been. And um, 
they often get job offers at the end of projects. Like we want to hire you full time when you graduate. So it's like just this great opportunity, just this great thing I'm super proud of. And it's it, I'm just creating the type of system that I would have needed desperately. So it does feel like revenge. And I feel very satisfied by that. Uh, so you ended up being the executive director at a major college. Mm-hmm. How funny is that? Yeah, well, go back to the second grade. You know, you're you're able to get back on your time machine and tell the second grader, hey, by the way, you're going to be an executive director at a college someday. Yeah. Do you believe that? No, not at all. Not then. I, I, I was just entering the Valley of Darkness. I hadn't become a warrior yet. I know that seems all highfalutin, but it's true. I'm not too sure I would say the school was failing, Drew. I think the things should have been caught at a much earlier age. And there should have been what we now call response to intervention, where they immediately would have moved in and helped him with some of the reading issues when he was much, much younger. I don't think he would have ever been a great reader, but I think he wouldn't have anywhere near the problem that he was having in class with the reading. Do you know what makes you strong? Surviving attacks. That's what makes you strong. That's what makes you good at it. You touch the stove. You get stabbed. You yep. learn, I don't like getting stabbed. So would you change anything about your life? I mean, it seems oh, you're know, you the one that just said it, you know, battle. Yeah, no, I, I mean, would I change stuff? Sure, there's little things, but um, no. No, I'm, I'm really happy where I, I don't want to say ended up. I mean, ended up. A lot of it is like luck and, you know, you where you are when it happens. You know, that stuff, is, of course, is part of it, but I don't really believe in that. It's like I don't believe in talent. I, I believe in... You, you you have a natural inclination to do this. You're you just naturally are pretty good at it. Like it comes to you easy. It looks like talent when you work your butt off. That's when it looks like talent. And everybody's like, oh, you make it look easy. It's like, yeah, no, <laughs> my hand hurts. <laughs> it kills. Like you know. So I think it. it would I change it? No, no. I mean, there's a couple lessons that I go back. And I'd be like, don't do that. You know, but. No, because I, I feel like I am in a position where, and the reason I'm not doing the film company anymore is because I'm actually affecting people's lives in a way that is like that revenge I talked about. Revenge is, seems negative, but not for me. It was positive. I felt real good about that diagnosis. And what I felt good about was the fact that I didn't let him get stuck in some learning disability class and um, get labeled. Thanks to Drew Maxwell for hanging out with me today. To hear this podcast and other amazing conversations with people redefining disability, don't forget to subscribe to Taking Flight wherever you get your podcasts. For some fun bonus material and some other goodies, head to perilarock.com. This podcast was produced by Auto Vita, sound engineering by Sean Henninger and Greg Williams. Theme music by my buddy, Andrew Parker Ringa. Check out more of his music at aprmusic.com. Today's show also features music from film score composer Sean Henninger from the band Memory, spelled with two Y's. For more of his music, visit memorymusic.com or neonmoonstudios.com. Additional music from Greg Williams of the band The Grawl Brothers. For more of their music, visit thegrawlbrothers.bandcamp.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Mansfield Hall, a residential college support program for students on the autism spectrum in Vermont, Wisconsin, and Oregon, and Virtual Hall, providing virtual academic and social support for students attending college across the world. 
On next week's episode, Sina Baram, computer scientist, consultant, business owner, and entrepreneur. What I'm going to do is pipe the audio from my screen reader uh, into the call. And so you'll basically be able to hear what I'm hearing. And then I'm going to have it read for a little bit. Let's just give it a whirl. Let's, let's have it read like the first paragraph or two. Okay, that's, that's good enough. I'm Perry LaRock. See you next time.